When I first read our Gospel reading, which I'm very familiar with, the first thing that popped into my mind was Bob Marley's song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. And it reminded me of a story of a husband sitting with his spouse at the kitchen table, saying to his spouse in a rather patronizing way, You worry too much. It doesn't do any good. And she replied, Oh, it does a lot of good for me. Ninety-nine percent of the things I worry about never happen. On first blush, our gospel passage seems to reflect that Bob Marley song. Delightful little song, Don't worry, be happy. And when our gospel passage is placed alongside of our epistle, we also get the impression that we are to be thankful for everything and pray for everyone, including leaders, enemies, and systems that oppress us. And then Joel comes along and tells us not to be afraid. And if we do all this, we will live a quiet and peaceful life. Taken at face value, that doesn't reflect my experience. Instead, it makes me feel either inadequate or guilty for all the fears and worries that I have. I'm supposed to pray for those leaders and just decide to stop worrying about everything, and my life will get more quiet and peaceful. Sounds like a fantasy world or a fake world to me, Matthew, Paul. What world are you living in? But when I think of their lives, their words don't match the experience that I imagined they had. And all on this Thanksgiving weekend, when I want to be thankful for my privileged position in the world and just eat my turkey, stuffing, sweet potatoes, and pumpkin pie. And so I confess that for me, Thanksgiving is a complicated holiday, especially if I look at it objectively rather than just like the publican on the street corner who sees the street person and thanks God that he's not like that poor guy. And at least for us in Canada, it's not overtly treated as a celebration of us settlers arriving and stealing the land from the indigenous inhabitants, even though that is our history's reality. And I come to frown often when I hear the worn-out phrase, just have an attitude of gratitude despite the truism that may be in those words. Our world's ills are pervasive, and I don't want my celebration of gratitude to be a distraction or avoidance of that reality. And so, for example, how do I reflect on the Spanish sculpture that depicts world leaders discussing climate change while sitting in water up to their necks? How do I hold the reality of the distended bodies of children starving in Africa as I stuff myself with too much food? And I feel so safe in my surroundings. And yet, what do I do about my fellow humans who live with pervasive violence? And how do I allow myself to feel grateful when I hear about a shoeshine boy who walks into a mask with a backpack full of explosives and kills himself and over 100 others while they worship, and he does it in the name of God. The list of worrying ills and the affront they are to a sense of peace and quietness doesn't exactly engender a sense of, don't worry, just be happy. 
and often gratitude not based on comparison is hard to come by, and I'm tempted to retreat to my gated community and keep my distance. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I am grateful, so very grateful. But sometimes the focus of my gratitude is more about distraction than reality. And perhaps I need to reflect on what there is to be grateful for. But then I often end up worrying and asking, where is God in all of this? And overwhelmed with worry, fear, and religious expectations, I find myself asking ultimate questions about God's existence. But I'm a good Christian. So I don't mention my doubts, fears, or worries. Instead, I just look like they don't affect me. Don't worry. Be happy. But if I'm honest, they wake me up in the middle of the night, and they just spin around and spin around. There is a lot to worry about. And in the context of this, I sometimes tire of the discussions of whether God exists or not. My feeble arguments and all the feeble arguments I hear seem to have no real bearing on the actual question. What the ultimate reality actually is cannot be influenced by my brilliant arguments. And even God, as portrayed in our scriptures, doesn't get into that argument. God just says, I am. Get over it. My friend Jim is a retired teacher who may have taught you or your children here in Vernon. He was a well-liked high school English teacher who also taught a unique class in psychology. And I don't know how many times I've been in a coffee shop or a restaurant with Jim, and suddenly someone comes up and said, Mr. Martins, is that you? Your class changed my life. Yesterday, Jim told me he would occasionally play word association games with his students. He would say a word and ask the students to say the first thing that came to their mind. Words like school, parent, politics, love, peace, beauty, God. And often with humorous or poignant results. He also tried this exercise with adults with the same common result. And I asked him what the response was to the word God. And I quote him, blank looks, or confused silence, or deep thoughtfulness, because people didn't really have clear answers at all. There seems to be an unspoken assumption that we know what we're talking about when we mention the word God, but that's not really the case. The silence and confused or blank looks are certainly food for thought. And when I asked Jim if I could use this example this morning, he responded with yes, and then added, emotionally, I'm so glad to have weathered the storm of my certitudes. I'm so glad to have weathered the storm of my certitudes. That's the summary of my sermon this morning. Letting go of our certitudes because they are simplistic and limited to our experience in this world, the seen world. And perhaps the term God has become too loaded in our culture because of how we've used God instead of allowed ourselves to be loved by God. And so lately for me, the real question has become not is there a God, but is there an unseen world? 
If there is, what might that unseen world be like? Might faith, belief in God, be an awareness of the possibility of this unseen world as the force for how we live in the seen world? God bless you then becomes similar to may the unseen force be with you. And here, ironically, I find myself often looking at science, especially quantum physics and string theory, neither of which I understand, although I'm both curious and actually relieved that I don't understand. Here's the simplest definition I could find for string theory. I still don't understand it. The definition is, String theory states that everything in our universe is made up of tiny vibrating strings. These strings are one-dimensional objects and are identical to one another. Every fundamental particle that we know of, such as electrons, quarks, photons, gluons, etc., are made up of these strings. I'm glad, I'm glad we got that cleared up. Even the scientists that study and posit these possibilities tell me their work is full of not understanding. It dwells behind the veil of the mysterious. A little brain strain here. High school science has taught us that we live in four dimensions. Well, for me, it was three. Three that define our perception of reality, our day-to-day concrete experience. Length, uh, length, width, and height. We live in a three-dimensional world, our seen world. And any perception, influence, or especially control that we do have operates within those three dimensions. It's what we know. Scientists suggest the fourth dimension is time. The fourth dimension that we live in is time. Here we have no control. Time is only forward-moving. And perhaps that's why we flirt so much with the possibility of time travel. Imagine the control time travel would give you to go back in time or forward in time to correct the past or to influence the future. Maybe that's what forgiveness is. It corrects the past and influences the future. But that's another sermon. Where or what would you do if you actually had the capacity of time travel? And if you begin to think of it, it's mind-boggling. But what's even more mind-boggling is that string theory suggests that there are ten or more dimensions, six dimensions beyond our seen world of four dimensions. One scientist simplistically suggests that the final dimension for us is pure science fiction, a reality where anything that we can imagine is actually a possibility perhaps even a reality. (sighs) My brain is overheated, and I just want to stop and stare. Awe, overwhelming awe. God, perhaps. But let's go back to the possibility of other dimensions, where what is real is totally outside of our four-dimensional world, and yet includes it, or perhaps is held within it. I don't know what scientists call parallel universes, a reality that operates parallel to our seen world but is unseen by us. And so within my Christian experience, 
Might God be that force in the unseen world that holds all of these dimensions? Might Jesus the Christ be the incarnation, be the three-dimensional entrance of that God in time, the fourth dimension? And might the Spirit be that invisible wind that blows between the seen and the unseen world, inviting an awareness of a connected universe where all is one? Perhaps faith is not about how this works, but more the hope and belief that perhaps it might. Might this be part of what it means to live in the world but not of the world? I don't know about you, but when I think on these things, I can live in these possibilities to the point of distraction. So if you've already checked out, forgive me. But now I want to place this inside our epistle and gospel passage. The word in our gospel passage translated worry is not totally correct. A better word would be distracted, and so I paraphrase this passage. For this reason, I repeat myself, do not be distracted by your life in the seen world, which is about what you eat or what you drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Is life not more than these four dimensions we live in? Perhaps that's the question. And so on this Thanksgiving Day, I hear, enjoy the seen world that I have given you, but don't make it everything there is, because then life will become about acquisition, judgment, power, and manipulation. Instead, let the unseen world inform the seen world, and you will find the possibility of acceptance, gentleness, compassion, right here in the beauty and mess of the seen world. If we only live in the seen world, this seems foolish. To the seen world, this is weakness. But in the unseen world, it carries the strength, I want to suggest, of unconditional love. And so we don't just pray for kings, leaders, opponents, the other party, etc., to change their behavior. We pray so that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in godliness and dignity with the faith possibility of a parallel universe that informs our universe. In that way, it's a different way of looking at how prayer changes things. It doesn't tend to fix situations, neither does it tend to take away anxiety and worry, but it has the potential to place those things in a larger context of hope and grace and brings a sense of balance that gives us enough love to hold it all rather than becoming fixated or distracted by individual worries. So I want to suggest these thoughts are not a distraction. We have plenty of those. In fact, it moves us from the temptation to manipulate into a position of contemplation, which I would define as a long, loving look at the real, both the real I love and am grateful for and the real that forms all my fears and worry. And so this, I suggest, could be a movement from avoidant distraction to engaged attention. We live in the practicality of everyday life and hold it all in the loving presence of our connection with the divine, a broader context that makes it possible 
for us to live in the seen world, but from an, aware, un, from an awareness or a hope of the unseen world, the world of metaphor, emotion, energy, longing, parables, myth, archetypes, music, an inner knowing connected with intuitive realities. It invites the reality expressed by the mystic Julian of Norwich, but all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. This is the faith connection between the seen and unseen world that enabled William Sanford Stafford to write his song, It Is Well With My Soul, even as he mourned the death of his four daughters, the death of his son, and the burning of his vast real estate holdings in the Chicago fire. This hymn is not a hymn of distraction, avoidance, or spiritual pride. This is a song of attention to all that has occurred, a long, loving look at the real that finds a connection between the seen world and the unseen world, right in the middle of gut-wrenching, grief, fear, and worry. I'm not sure how you do that without some sense of transcendence or parallel universes, or intuitive sense of a connection between something mystery, mysterious that is beyond our comprehension. So for us Christians, perhaps Jesus as the incarnation of the Christ is Christianity's archetype of the unseen world, the undergirding, the foundation of the seen world. He is God in three-dimensional form that breaks through the dimension of time and enters our three-dimensional world. He reaffirms that we are born in the image of one who holds and understands all dimensions, everything, and is the originator of all dimensions. And so we pray endlessly, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And through him, we as Christians are called to live in the world, but not of the world, to live the gospel message that in the midst of all that often overwhelms us in the seen world, gives us the faith that there is an unseen world that somehow completes our full identity. The hard part for us is that we tend to take images from our seen world and use them to inform the unseen world rather than the other way around. We experience the confusing necessity of war to make peace. And then we assume that we have a God in the unseen world that gives his stamp of approval to fight that war. We have created a confusing God who holds an open hand to us with one hand of unconditional love, but the other hand is ready to slap us across the face at the simplest displeasure. We feel the urge to be punitive in our world of control, to control our collective experience, and then assume the unseen world operates in the same way. And our scriptures are full of these examples, mixed in with wonderful passages about God's unconditional love. The call is to set your affections on things above. How do you lose unconditional love? If God loves unconditionally, you cannot lose that love. So allow the unconditional love that functions in the unseen world to influence how you live in the seen world, not the other way around. As I've said before, you know you've created God in your own image 
when your God hates the same people you do. And so a blessed Thanksgiving. Today, as you eat your three-dimensional turkey in your three-dimensional house with your three-dimensional family and friends, be grateful for all that has been given, is being given, and will be given, even as you find yourself complicit in the inequities of our three-dimensional world. Ultimately, all has emerged from this unseen world as a gift of life and love. We have a few short years to respond to this unseen world in our seen world by saying, I love you too. And it is this unseen love that challenges us to embody this love, to incarnate it in our daily lives. The gospel is that our real life dwells in that unseen world. May we be grateful that we have weathered the storm of our certitudes. Amen.